This is the 11KBW Employment Podcast, where every month, members of our employment team get together to chat about a recent case. I'm Lucy Jones, and today I'm joined by Dan Stillitz. He's going to tell me about Deliveroo, the Supreme Court's freshly minted judgment on collective bargaining, and a little bit of Egyptian history. Thank you very much, Lucy. And I should say at the outset, welcome to Chambers as one of our most junior tenants uh, recently joined, and also welcome uh, to our podcasting team, which we're very excited to have you on. Thank you so much. I think uh, our last podcast with Sean Jones and Alia, we're, we're very excited to talk about the nerdy employment crew. Is that you and I as well, Dan? I have to say, I take exception to that. They can be, <laughs> they can, they can be the nerdy crew. I think we're the sort of swashbuckling... I love that. ...kind yeah. of, you know, red in tooth and claw advocacy employment. Right, so these are the cool employment lawyers. We're, we're, the, we're the cool employment lawyers, exactly. <laughs> So Dan, this is a case which began in 2017 with an application by the Independent Workers' Union of Great Britain to the Central Arbitration Committee. What have the last seven years been about? Yes, so the Central Arbitration Committee has a statutory role to decide applications for recognition by trade unions. And there's an extremely long and complicated set of provisions in Schedule A1 to the Trade Union and Labour Relations Consolidation Act 1992, which sets out all of the criteria that need to be fulfilled if you want to apply to be recognised as a union. But one of the absolutely most basic criteria is that the union needs to be making the application on behalf of a group of, quote, workers, by which we mean Limby workers. Right. And I think those of us familiar with Uber might have an idea on that. But can you take us through worker status and how this classification has come about? Sure. So broadly speaking, in British employment law, there are two categories of protected individuals. We have employees who work under traditional contracts of service. And then we have what are referred to as Lim B workers, so-called because the statutory definition has Lim A, which is employees and Lim B, who are a broader category of worker. They are defined as those who work under a contract to undertake or perform work personally for another party who is not professional client of his. That's a broader category and includes in particular people who work in atypical gig economy type jobs and so on. And that has been the focus of much of the recent litigation on employment rights status. Right. And I understand that this case had a European flavour in that we weren't just talking about domestic legislation, but rather we were talking about domestic legislation in the context of Article 11. Uh, Can you give us a little overview of where the law stood on trade union rights and Article 11 before Deliveroo came along? Sure. So this case, great case, I suppose, unless you're a Deliveroo rider, it had something for everyone. It had employment status and it had human rights law, freedom of association. So Article 11 of the European Convention, which is incorporated into domestic law by the Human Rights Act, is the right to freedom of association. But contained within that right is the right to join and be represented by a trade union. And what has happened over the last 20 years or so, in particular, is that the trade unions have used Article 11 as a way to try and challenge the limitations 
on uh, within domestic legislation on rights to collective bargaining and also in some other contexts like the right to strike. And Article 11 is used as a sort of battering ram by the unions to try and get rid of restrictions and limitations on the rights which workers enjoy. And in particular, what they've tried to do is to use Article 11 to get the widest possible collective bargaining rights that they can. And so there's been a whole string of cases where where trade unions have invoked Article 11 with mixed success, it has to be said, in order to try and expand the right to collective bargaining. Great. And so then we arrive with Deliveroo, the Supreme Court, with a hearing in April of this year, before delving into the fascinating details of the case, including some excellent detail on ancient Egyptian history. I'm going to do a little roll call, because uh, I understand there was quite a substantial 11 KBW showing. Indeed, yeah. So that was the great Chris Jeans, KC, Tom Cross and Raphael Hogart for the respondent Deliveroo. And you were there as well for the Secretary of State for Business and Trade with Stephen Kosman. Exactly. We had very good chambers representation in the Supreme Court, which is always nice. Chris and Tom and Raphael were acting for Deliveroo. But I think you're being a bit modest there, Lucy, because I understand that you basically did most of the the work behind the scenes (laughs) for them. And then myself, I led Stephen Kosman on behalf of the Secretary of State in a slightly more minor role, it has to be said, but it was very nice to to go along. Fantastic. And a starry moment of my pupillage, which it is great to recount. And with nobody left behind in chambers, what went down that day? What was the court asked to decide? So it all came about in a rather curious way. Before the CAC, the central issue was was whether the delivery riders workers, and we'll come back to this, but broadly speaking, they were found not to be workers because they had a right of substitution, i.e. for someone else to do their work under the relevant contracts. And that was broadly why they were held not to be workers. And because they were not workers, the relevant machinery for recognition for collective bargaining purposes didn't apply. And so their application to be recognised failed. So that's big picture what was going on. But one of the arguments they raised, it has to be said probably fairly low down their list of best arguments, was that because Article 11 does, to an extent, include a right to collective bargaining, that we need to unpack that a bit, but broadly there is recognised to be some kind of right to collective bargaining, that because they enjoyed rights under Article 11, therefore the statute should be construed in such a way that didn't preclude them from seeking recognition simply because they didn't fall within the domestic limby worker definition. So so that was one of the arguments they put forward, which was also unsuccessful. They then applied for judicial review of the CAC decision, because that's the route by which you need to challenge CAC decisions. And they applied on various grounds, challenging really all aspects of the decision, but they only got permission to apply for judicial review on one ground, and that was the Article 11 ground. And it has to be said, I think that if Uber and Aslam had been decided in the Supreme Court before the permission hearing in this case, I wonder whether they might have got permission on other grounds as well. But as it was, they only got through under Article 11. So by this, the time this case got to the administrative court, it was only about whether Article 11 of the convention meant that 
one had to construe the legislation under the 1992 Act as permitting even those who didn't fulfil worker status from applying for recognition for collective bargaining purposes. And that was the only issue. They failed at first instance. They failed in the Court of Appeal. And But there was enough in it for it to get to the Supreme Court. And when they got to the Supreme Court, they failed again, although on slightly different grounds. And we can go into, into those in a moment. What was interesting, though, is that the Supreme Court did actually look at the question of worker status a bit more than it probably had to. So there's some actually some helpful guidance on that. And they also came to a pretty clear view on Article 11. So then starting on issue one, you've given us the procedural lead up. The court then had to consider the scope of the class of people who fall within that trade union right under Article 11. Yeah. Uh, So it wasn't looking at limb A, limb B, because delivery had failed on that argument and hadn't gotten permission. How did it draw the line? What sort of test did it take? So... The Supreme Court accepted that the right under Article 11 is an autonomous European-wide right. It doesn't, it can't depend on the specific statutory definitions applying in different Council of Europe states. So it was, it had to look for something general, and it analysed the case law and basically came down to a, the following definition: Are the applicants in quotes an employment relationship? And employment relationship is something that the Strasbourg Court has looked at in particular in the case called The Good Shepherd, uh, where the issue was whether Orthodox priests in Romania had worker status. And what the Strasbourg Court did in that case is it adopted a definition of worker status that the ILO has used. And that was the test of whether the trade union right applied. Now, in fact, the employment relationship test which Strasbourg has used piggybacking on the ILO is not that different to, in practice, to to worker status under domestic law, but it isn't applying that statutory definition in a full-blooded way. Right. And I understand that the notion of substitution, often criticised as allowing lawyers to insert a clause and kind of bypass worker status was addressed by the court as one of the ILO factors. How did the court address the criticism that this can be an artificial way of getting around working practice, what's actually happening in the ground? Yeah, so a right of substitution is both in the Strasbourg employment relationship context and in the worker context, one of the few sort of clear-cut ways in which an employer can argue that there is no requirement of personal service and therefore worker status doesn't apply. So it's quite a significant area. And what, as your question implies, what it often happens is that employers will include a nominal right of substitution in an employment agreement so that they can point to it and say, well, this isn't a worker contract because look, here's this is this very significant right of substitution. And there's been quite a bit of of litigation on this recently. I mean, going back to to worker status more generally, the Supreme Court in the Uber and Aslam case took a very broad brush approach to what a worker is, essentially saying you take a purposive approach, you look at the realities, you almost, if you read Lord Leggett's judgment, although others have read back from it since, you almost ignore the written contract altogether. And you just look at 
the nature of the relationship and say, is this the sort of people who we think Parliament wanted to have this particular right? And in your opinion, where does where does Deliveroo come in that? Because we know, don't we, that sometime before, I think shortly before the CAC hearing, Deliveroo actually brought a, a new contract with a new substitution clause in it. Yeah. And that was commented upon. Well, yes. Well, the thing about the thing about the substitution clause is that didn't arise in Uber and Aslam. So that's the sort of last bastion for employers who want to avoid worker status, that the right to sub to bring a substitute. And the concept's been chipped away at a bit. And essentially what the courts have increasingly said is a nominal right of substitution isn't enough. It needs to be genuine and so on. And things like, you know, its significance, the frequency with which it's used will be relevant. But the findings of the CAC were quite strong on this. So the CAC found that the right of substitution for delivery riders was genuine and they found that it was used, albeit quite rarely, but it was not so de minimis that they felt they could ignore it. And that was really the the central reason why worker status wasn't found. Now, in the Supreme Court, obviously the, the Supreme Court were bound by that, but they went further than they had to and they they said that this right of substitution was wholly in, incompatible with worker status. And although they said it has to be genuine and one looks at the realities of the of the relationship, it's quite a strong affirmation of substitution as being inconsistent with personal service. And so whilst before Deliveroo, my view was that is the right of substitution going to continue to be as decisive as it was and will it be yeah. chipped away even more, which is still possible, I would say that the Supreme Court probably breathed a bit of a new lease of life into the right of substitution because they considered it to be so decisive in this particular case. And there were some helpful facts for them, weren't there? Like the multi-apping that some of the riders performed working on Uber Eats and one delivery and the next switching to Deliveroo. Yes, I mean, the, the graphic illustration that was given by Deliveroo in the Supreme Court was of the delivery rider who can wear the livery of a different delivery company, Uber Eats being one, I'm sure there are others. They can be simultaneously apping for several companies. They're not discouraged to do that. They can simply pick and choose and they can go on and off working whenever they want. And so if ever there was a case where the realities of the model reflected you know, an ability to, a degree of flexibility, which seemed incompatible with worker status, that this was it. And funnily enough, I think not so much the right of substitution, which was really quite rarely used. And also the difficulty I have with it, it was, it was very difficult to see what the what the economic purpose of substitution in a case such as this would be. Right. Why train, get your account and then lease it out to others? Exactly. When they could just as easily sign up. So I think one has to to look a bit sceptically at rights of substitution, which don't seem to serve any obvious economic purpose. But in this case... Nevertheless. They found that it was genuine, and so that was that was good enough. And that was game over, wasn't it? But nonetheless, the Supreme Court turned its mind to another issue, and uh, Egyptian history as part of that. Yes, exactly. Now, I've heard people quoting Roman law before... <laughs> But I have to I have to be frank, this was the first time I've had opponents quoting Egy- ancient Egyptian law in the appellant courts, which was impressive, although 
I did sort of Google this to see if I could find if what they said was true. And I can't find any evidence myself that collective bargaining was invented by the ancient Egyptians, who I, I thought were rather keen on slave labour. But you know, they could well be right. What we do know is that the term collective bargaining was first coined by Beatrice Webb in 1891, and that it soon came into to common usage. But yes, they were, they were definitely going back to basics with their account of collective bargaining. But the really, the really important issue on this was whether the European Court of Human Rights has found that compulsory collective bargaining is an aspect of Article 11. Right. So going from Egypt to the Europeans. Exactly. So in Europe, the law on collective bargaining has developed in, in, in that Article 11 traditionally has prevented a, the closed shop and sort of oppressive anti-union legislation. But only relatively recently in a case called Demir and Turkey was the right to collective bargaining said to be an aspect of Article 11. And that was collective bargaining as opposed to compulsory collective bargaining. Exactly, because the facts of, of Demir were quite extreme. That was a case where some municipal workers entered into a into a collective agreement with their public sector employer. And that agreement was then annulled by the state authorities who, for good measure, then abolished the union because they felt that civil servants uh, shouldn't be able to form unions. So it was a pretty extreme interference with rights. And the question before the European Court of Human Rights in that case was, does a right to collective bargaining fall within the the scope of Article 11? They held that it did. But the question there wasn't, there should be a compulsory collective bargaining right. The point here is that the parties have been quite keen to do some collective bargaining. And the state says, no, you can't. You're not allowed to, even if you voluntarily would like to. So on analysis, all that was really decided by Demir, according to the Supreme Court, was that collective bargaining came within the scope of Article 11. It wasn't one of the essential elements. And there are some subsequent cases, in particular, a case called Unite the Union against United Kingdom, which reinforced that. So in Unite the Union, that was a case about the abolition of the agricultural wages boards, which were set up to set wages, as one would imagine, in the agricultural sector. And they were abolished by the government, which meant in practice, agricultural workers would not have much of a right to collective bargaining at all, because essentially they're quite an atomized workforce. They tend to be small employers. One of the requirements for applying for compulsory collective bargaining under Schedule A1 to the 1992 Act is that the employer has at least 20 workers, which would rarely be the case. So The Strasbourg court recognised that abolishing the agricultural wages boards meant that there was in practice not going to be much collective bargaining going on in the agricultural sector in the UK. But nonetheless, they said that was a case about the the state's positive obligations to facilitate collective bargaining. There was still nothing to stop collective bargaining going on in the agricultural sector, unlike the position in, in Demir. And therefore, it was sufficient to comply with Article 11 that there was a permissive right to collective bargaining. It didn't violate Article 11 that there was no compulsory right to collective bargaining. And delivery is asking for a step further, isn't it? They were. And to be fair, they had some domestic authority, which seemed to lend support to that. So I think I said earlier that the that the unions have tried to use Article 11 as a sort of 
battering ram to, to get rid of bits of the yeah. to restrictions in the union recognition legislation. And there's been a whole series of cases where they've done that. One called the Boots case. In Boots, there was an argument that the limited right to apply to be collective bargaining when there was already an arrangement in, in place violated Article 11. There was a case called Independent Works of Great Britain against the CAC, a case about the University of London, where, again, there was a challenge to the limitations on the uh, ability to apply for compulsory collective bargaining, where there were already some other arrangements in place. And in those cases, although they all failed, the Court of Appeal essentially said, well, post-Demir, there may be a right in some circumstances to compulsory collective bargaining, but every system of compulsory recognition has to have conditions and limitations and... Have to draw the line somewhere. You have to draw the line somewhere, not least because you can't have a free-for-all. You can't say everyone's entitled to collective bargaining with everyone else all the time, because then it'll be like a Tower of Babel and everyone will just be having parallel and cross-cutting negotiations. So you have to have some kind of orderly way of deciding who has a right to collective bargaining with whom in respect of which groups of workers. And all of that means that that's why Schedule A1 to the 92 Act is so long and complicated, because it's all about deciding how you get through that. But where the Supreme Court rode back from where the Court of Appeal had got to in those cases, it said that the Court of Appeal had gone too far in saying there was ever a right to compulsory collective bargaining. And on the Supreme Court's reading of the Article 11 authorities in Deliveroo. They said all they do is establish that there has to be an ability voluntarily to enter into collective bargaining. And as long as you've got that, Article 11 hasn't gone that step further and said there ever needs to be a sort of right to be recognised by the union on behalf of the employer. So this is saying really there's the states have discretion in how they choose to protect trade union freedom and, and not a helpful move for the trade unions, I wouldn't think. No, I mean, I would say that this was perhaps a bad case for the union to choose to take to the Supreme Court because the findings of fact they'd had were were not great. And the Supreme Court took a, a rather more robust approach than the Court of Appeal in these previous decisions, the Boots case and so on, and really cut back what had been recognised to be a right by the Court of Appeal. So now I would say the scope for... British trade unions to try and use Article 11 to expand collective bargaining rights is really going to be pretty limited, at least on the state of the current domestic authority. So that's some unhelpful clarity, at least for the trade unions. Taking us all the way back to the start of this podcast, maybe not quite as far back as Egypt, I don't think our listeners want to want to stay on for another few hours. We started, I think, with legislation that began around the early 90s. That's not really a time of gig economy, wasn't it? I think... I think I had dial-up internet at that time. <laughs> yes. The worker concept, it's slightly changed, but it appeared in the discrimination legislation, which went wider than, than the mere employee definition. And then I think was introduced in the Wages Act 1986, although it didn't figure very prominently in the authorities until really the late 90s. And it was in the late 90s that we had the working time regulations national minimum wage legislation, and so forth. And that also coincided with the explosion in the gig economy, which kind of tested to destruction the basic elements. Can we think of any legislative change that might help? I hear there's some 
some winds of change perhaps coming across from Europe with the EU platform work directive and perhaps if we're to see a Labour government in the next general election, uh, there's some chat of proposing a single status of worker for all but the quote-unquote genuinely self-employed. Will that solve the problem, Dan? I'm afraid I think the answer to that is no for this reason. So we've got the EU platform work directive, which hasn't yet become EU legislation, but effectively reverses the burden of proving status where certain indicia are are fulfilled. Obviously, post-Brexit, that won't apply directly to us, but it, it may be influential. The Labour Party seems to have made noises about clarifying uh, worker status, as you say, for all but the genuinely self-employed. But that simply pushes back the problem to how do you decide who's genuinely self-employed? And and the difficulty with this is that um, one can try and simplify it and, and, and come up with some kind of simple test, but employers will then always simply try and change their arrangements in such a way as to, if they want those who work for them not to have workers, right, not fulfil that test. And so the idea that that one can simplify it, I think, is, is a bit naive because there will always be ways of trying to arrange things differently, which mean that definition isn't fulfilled. And, and speaking of future disputes, I understand that delivery won't be the last word and won't be the last day out for 11 KBW in the Supreme Court. Yes, well, I mean, Article 11 cases really are like buses because we've had the first... Supreme Court case in many years on Article 11 in Deliveroo. And in just two weeks, Hannah Slarks in Chambers and I are appearing in a case called Mercer and Alternative Futures Group, which is another case on Article 11. Now, that's on a very different aspect of Article 11, which is whether Article 11 requires the UK to have legislation preventing those who participate in industrial action from suffering a detriment. So it's about the extent to which Article 11 protects those who take part in strike action. That's a less developed area of of Article 11. There have been some cases which deal with Article 11 and, and strike action. The one involving the UK most recently was RMT against the United Kingdom, which went to Strasbourg, where the Strasbourg court held that the notification and balloting requirements for strike action were not incompatible with Article 11. And they also held that the complete ban on secondary industrial action was not incompatible with Article 11. But this is another area where the unions have been using Article 11 to sort of push for an expansion of rights. And we'll see in a couple of weeks, whether that grabs the Supreme Court. Well, that's great. We look forward to the podcast episode on that to follow. Absolutely. Hopefully that won't be too long, although we had to wait, I think, about seven months for judgment and delivery. So it may be a bit of a while before we get that one. That was Dan Stillitz talking to me, Lucy Jones, about Deliveroo, the Supreme Court's latest word on collective bargaining. This podcast is produced by our own Hannah Slarks. You can find this podcast on all the usual apps. In fact, if you're listening to this, you have obviously already found it. Look at you. You can also email us at employmentpodcast at 11kbw.com.